it's always a privilege to look at God's Word, and today we're taking a little sort of interesting paragraph between two significant sort of stories. It's kind of a interesting how Matthew puts things together. It's perfect. It's always perfect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word. We are approaching it for understanding, to magnify Jesus Christ more in our hearts and what you've accomplished through him and to appreciate your great sovereignty over all things. You are a mighty God, infinite in wisdom and understanding and power. And we magnify that today in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last week in uh, Matthew 17, we began looking at this extraordinary experience of the transfiguration of Christ that just three of the apostles uh, were allowed to see. I always try to put myself there and and wonder what it would have been like uh, for those guys to see Jesus gloriously transformed before their very eyes. I mean, it's hard to actually imagine. And I suppose we modern people, we've probably seen something like it a hundred times, especially if you watch science fiction shows, because there's always, like on Star Trek every other week, there's some being turning into a glorious glowing being, right? But it's a little different on the screen than thinking about what it would be like actually on a mountaintop with the, the man Jesus Christ and him truly uh, transfigured into his glory and seeing his glory face to face. To get a handle on the description in verse 2 is, um, it's hard to really picture. He was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his garments became as white as light. It was glorious. A glorious in a way that uh, we could not experience and, and haven't until we get to heaven. And glorious um, in a way they could not forget. I mean, uh, you can forget when it happens on Star Trek, but you can't forget when it happens in real life. And um, they couldn't possibly have forgotten this. J.R. Miller, the old preacher, he said, they carried the impression of the transfiguration in their hearts as long as they live. And they most certainly did. Um, I want to go back to Second Peter for a minute. Uh, we talked about it last week a little bit, but just to kind of refresh ourselves about how Peter, at the end of his life, knowing that he was about to be executed and he dashes off his final letter, that little book we call Second Peter at the back part of the Bible there, um, he makes a point to say in that letter that the things he taught throughout his ministry were not fables. They weren't stories. They weren't creations. He said, we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's so clear. Eyewitnesses and earwitnesses too. He goes on in 2 Peter 1.17, he says, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we were eyewitnesses. We saw it, he says. We were earwitnesses. We, we heard it. And Peter in his last hours was remembering the face of Christ with the brightness of glory. And he knew he was about to see that again. And I should mention that Peter, although caught up in the memory of that event, says something pretty wonderful in that very same passage for us. He had the benefit of the vision, a, a very unique experience for just three men. Only three men got to see that. But right after that, he says, we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention 
as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The day is coming and the morning star has appeared showing that the day is going to come. Christ has come. We see his glory. We know who he is. And now we're waiting for the daytime when the full glory of Christ is made known throughout the whole earth. But it's still dark, isn't it? And while Peter had his memory of Christ transfigured, he says, we have, you have, I have, a word that's more sure than that, more sure, a prophetic word made more sure. That's this. That's this book. It's, it's more certain than Peter's personal memory of the experience he had with Christ. It's more valuable. That's th that is the lamp that's shining in a dark place, God's word. And we would do well, he says, to pay attention to it. And his next sentence after that is, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture was, is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So scripture is from God as surely as the voice Peter heard out of the cloud of glory on the mountaintop. It is as sure as that. He calls it more sure. That's your light in a dark world. It, it is completely trustworthy. It is a trustworthy book. And that's why we call the Bible, although written by men, God's word, because the Holy Spirit, he says there, moved them. And the word is, is the same word used of a, a ship without a rudder on the sea, just being controlled by where the, where the water takes it, it goes. Or you throw a stick in a stream like Winnie the Pooh and the water carries it away. That's, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit the way a stick is carried along on a stream to write what the Holy Spirit wanted them to write. So even though their own personalities were engaged, their own experiences, they're writing their own words, the Holy Spirit made sure that they put down in Scripture exactly what God wanted to have here. And that is the prophetic word made more sure, more sure than the experience that Peter had on the mountaintop. That's something. So when I think of the three men who witnessed the transfiguration, I'm thinking, who in the history of the world is more privileged than those men? Well, you are. You're more privileged because you're holding in your hands a much more extensive revelation of God and, and more sure even than that experience. Just thought I should mention that. So, we've been on the holy mountain with Peter, James, and John and uh, through the scripture, but in our text, now it, there's gonna start coming down from the mountain. And actually there's quite a mess going on at the foot of the mountain, um, but that's for later. We'll talk that, about that in two weeks, okay? But there's this little conversation that happens as they're starting down. So in chapter 17, Matthew 17, verse 9, says they were coming down from the mountain. As they were coming down, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Tell no one. You know, no one, who does that? That, that includes Matthew and Bartholomew and Peter's brother Andrew. Don't tell Andrew. All the other disciples, they were not to be told. Not yet, not yet. The three were to hold this secret until after the resurrection of Christ. Remember we said Matthew's gospel has 
and just in the structure of the gospel, he's transitioning from, well, he's already made the transition now, but he's transitioned from the public proclamation of Christ to the um, rejection of Christ. That's been the main theme of the last few chapters. And now he's transitioned into this time when Jesus is totally focused on the apostles. He's still preaching publicly, but the main emphasis of all the texts is him training and discipling his men, getting them ready for when he's gone. And that's what's happening here. The transfiguration was for those three men for later. And he says it's for later. Don't even bring it up. Don't tell anybody about it until after the resurrection. So it was part of their special preparation. And he's spending a lot of time now um, pointing them to what lies ahead for him and how they're going to have to take the ball forward after that. In chapter 16, verse 21, he told them that he, quote, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And he tells them here again to wait until he is risen from the dead. So he's emphasizing his death and the resurrection a lot now. Why wait, though? Why wait for the resurrection? Because I think, because we have to speculate, of course, he doesn't say why, but um, the resurrection is the great evidence that the claims of Jesus are vindicated and that he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God. That's the proof of it. And the transfiguration which will kind of give those three men a glimpse into the future, a share in the future, if you will, that he doesn't want that separated from the resurrection experience. He doesn't want the focus to be on that. He wants the focus to be on the resurrection. Then when they tell that story of what happened at the transfiguration, it only adds to the great proof of who Christ is, which is the resurrection. That's the center. So I think that's why they're, they're not supposed to tell. So the resurrection is the victory of Christ over death, and that's the exaltation of himself to the Father's right hand. That's more important than the transfiguration. So the focus has to be there. So they're coming down, and Jesus says, don't tell, any, tell anyone, and they're thinking that through, and then a, a thought strikes them, and we don't know who spoke up, but one of them, um, and basically they're saying, okay, we, we've seen him in his glory. He's the Son of God. He is waiting to be revealed later in glory. He's telling us to wait. The kingdom is coming all the prophecies are going to be fulfilled, but where's Elijah? So Elijah has to precede the Messiah. That's what they're thinking about. At least that's what they've always been told. So they say in verse 10, his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Now there's a really good reason why the scribes say that, because he must come first. That's in the Bible. That's in the Old Testament. The scribes are right. Scribes aren't always wrong, you know. The scribes are right. And they've been told that all their lives. First Elijah, then Messiah. And of course, it wasn't something the scribes made up. It comes right out of Malachi. In fact, that's how the Old Testament ends. Malachi was the last prophet. If you look in your Old Testament, the last page is what they're referring to, the last page of the Old Testament. And there, the prophet Malachi says these words, Behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace. And all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. You know what chaff is, right? When you break a grain up and you take the valuable stuff, the chaff's the cheapy, crummy stuff that blows away. And that's what's going to happen to those that don't know the Lord. And the day is coming that will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, 
The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. A very happy picture. And then it says, this is in Malachi 4 verse 3, you will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great, the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He, Elijah, will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's the end of the Old Testament. A day of sorting, separating is coming. The, the wheat separated from the chaff. It's a terrible and glorious day. Elijah comes first before it and he will set forth a ministry of reconciliation. He will usher in a day of love and obedience amongst the Jewish people. Or if his work is rejected, God will smite the land with a curse. Those words, smite the land with a curse, th those are the last words ringing forth out of the Old Testament for Israel. They were the last words until the birth of Christ when angels spoke and prophets spoke again. So now, just kind of put yourself in the disciples' shoes coming down from the mountain and remember what had just happened. The veil had been pulled back on the mountaintop and they saw Jesus in all of his glory, radiant as he will be when he comes to set up his kingdom. And who did they see with him? Remember, there were two figures with him, right? Moses and Elijah. They saw Elijah personally. They just did that. That just happened. And then Jesus says, don't tell anybody until after he's risen from the dead. So they're saying, don't tell dead. So they're thinking about that. The most logical question in the world is, why then did the scribes say Elijah must come first? I mean, if we're not supposed to even do anything until all of that happens, Where's Elijah in that process? I mean, we saw him on the mountain, but he's not, he's not doing what was described in Malachi there. Only three of us saw Elijah. So where is his ministry that the scribes say has to precede the Messiah? So how is he preparing Messiah's way? It just seems out of order to them and wrong. It's just a question, and it's a good question. And Jesus answers the question directly. And something you'll notice about Jesus, he answers questions. Sometimes he answers them in a way that makes you think, but he does answer questions. He, he doesn't get mad at them for asking questions. He, uh, he likes to answer questions. So he's very direct here, and he's starting to make it clear, and this is the, why the, the gospel itself is moving into this preparing the disciples' time. He's getting more information to them now, um, clarifying things more and more. So he starts to make uh, really clear uh, what is happening all these amazing things about Jesus, the Son of God, and all the amazing things attending his presence, all of that, all that is happening points to the fact that Messiah comes two times. Everything he's been saying draws you to that conclusion. Verse 11, verse 11 is very eye-opening. And Jesus is answering their question. He says, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. That's exactly what Malachi said he would do. But I say to you, now here's the kind of a riddle, Elijah already came and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished. 
so also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Oh boy. So this is like important information. He says Elijah is coming and he says Elijah already came. Future, past, same guy. Messiah will suffer and be killed. Messiah will come in glory and reign forever. Messiah comes two times. Each time there will be an Elijah. And we are seeing this, uh, we've already seen this before, the transfiguration and the conversation back in chapter 16, verse 21, about Jesus' death. And then Jesus' words in Matthew 16, verse 27, where he says, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. So he will die and he will come in glory. That's why he brings up resurrection. That's the link between those things. That tells what will happen, but doesn't go too far into why it's going to happen that way yet. But the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, does tell us why. There's two comings. Hebrews 9.27, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, because he solved that problem, to those who eagerly await for him. So once he comes to die, the second time he comes to reign, right? He comes for salvation, to bring salvation to the earth. So two comings, two comings. First time he solves man's sin problem. Second time his righteous kingdom is established in the world, all according to the promises of God. And everything, he's going to fulfill all the promises he's made. So when he comes the second time, Elijah will prepare the way. When he came the first time, an Elijah figure did prepare the way. He's going to talk more about that. We'll get to that in a sec. But we aren't told much about Elijah before the return of Christ in the, in the Bible except what we had there in um, Malachi. But many people think that he is one of these two rather unique characters that are in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 11. You might want to look there. I'm going to read it, but you can look there if you want to. There's two men that God appoints at the end of the age that usher in the end of the world. And they're critical, critical figures in that time. And they're going to come three and a half years before Christ comes back. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, it says, you know, it's just reading this again. It's a pretty amazing story. I will grant authority to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. That's a pretty good power there. Makes Captain Marvel look kind of wimpy. (laughs) These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. They have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified, which means 
That's Jerusalem. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look on their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. Woo! Those power prophets are dead. Woo-hoo! They will send gifts to one another. It's like Christmas. It'll be the substitute dead prophets day. It'll be like Christmas every year. Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them on their phones. (laughs) And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. In that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Wow, that's a final testimony. You know how people talk about signs and wonders these days? That's signs and wonders. That's where it is. These are real signs and wonders. These men have incredible power at their disposal. Unbelievable power. But there are things we're not told. We're not told their names. So we sort of have to guess. And maybe their names are Bob and Pete. We don't, we don't really know for sure. But what is very clear is that in the tribulation period, that's God's time to deal with Israel. He sets aside that. That's Daniel's 70th week. If you know about the Daniel 9 prophecies, that seven-year period that's going to, God's going to take the church out of the world. He's got seven years to deal with Israel, punish the earth, and the evangelization of the earth is going to come in human and supernatural ways. Uh, Great tribulation is going to be poured out. Judgments on the world. We We live in the church age. So when Christ was rejected by Israel, that, there's a pause in God's dealing with Israel and he's going to take up dealing with Israel again in a wonderful way, powerful way. So they rejected the Messiah, but the time of Israel's not over. It's not over. We have many promises, very extensive and specific promises about Israel's future glory under the Messiah. It will be the premier nation of the world and all the nations will stream to it for wisdom. Matthew uh, 17, 11, that word restore is really important. Elijah is coming and will restore all things. What is being restored? Well, he says all things. That's a very general description, and I think that includes really everything because when Messiah comes back, he's going to remake the earth into a paradise and save all of his people. But specifically here in this Israel context, Israel at, it will be again at the center of God's attention and his saving work as the covenant people of God. God's attention now is on the church in terms of his saving work. So Jews, like our sister back there and hopefully her mom, are, into the, are brought into the church to be one, one body with Gentiles in the church. But at the end, God's going to focus on Israel in a very special way again. They'll be restored. Israel will be restored. Paul, in, in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, he said, a partial hardening, partial, has had, happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. So wow, Christ's second coming has a totally different result for Israel than his first coming had. 
right? I mean, how can that be? What makes them so responsive to the Messiah the second time he comes when they were so stubbornly hostile to him the first time that he came? What's the answer to that question? I know the answer. God's grace. That's always the answer. When you're talking about the salvation of human beings, it's God's grace. In fact, the Old Testament prophets predicted that too. Zechariah, also one of the last prophets. Zechariah 12.10, God says, I will pour out on the house of David and, on, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. That's a, that's a beautiful passage. So God will pour out his grace on them. And when he does that, their eyes will be opened and their hearts will mourn. And they'll be rescued and restored by Christ because they'll be ready to receive him. And repentance will be the mark of their faith as they contemplate the pierced one. The pierced one. So restoration, it's coming. And the words of Malachi will be fulfilled and all of God's promises will be fulfilled. At last, the land won't be struck with a curse the second time. You know, it was the first time. When they rejected Jesus, what happened? What happened within a generation? Well, Israel rebelled against Rome and what did Rome do? They completely destroyed the nation. They they killed probably a million Jews sold the rest into slavery, drove the rest out, scattered them. They were not a nation again until 1948. 1900 years. It's an amazing thing. But why are they still in the news? Because God has a future for them. He wants the world's attention always on Israel because he has a future for them. So the two prophets, they're going to prepare the way at the cost of their own lives as we saw. They certainly fit Elijah's job description, although they are unnamed. It is logical, and it's often been suggested that one of the two might be Elijah himself personally, because Elijah's one of the very few people in the world that never died. There's only, in fact, there's two people we know of that never died. I don't mean you sitting there, you're okay right now, but um, we're heading that way. But um, Enoch was super godly in Genesis, it just says he was just taken away. And Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind, he got to ride in a cool chariot. Swing low, sweet. So it's very possible that those two men will be these two witnesses. We don't know that for sure. But it could be two godly champions, that's for sure. But it's really wonderful to contemplate Jesus' words here in Matthew 17 and see what scripture confirms about the future. It, but let's talk about the past for a second because what else did Jesus say? Elijah is coming and will restore all things. Then verse 12, but... I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him but did to him whatever they wished. Remember that part? Well, we know who that is because we've already been reading Matthew's gospel. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the first Elijah. And the disciples remember that. In verse 13, they says, Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So had the Jews accepted Jesus as the Messiah John would have fulfilled that role of the coming Elijah. Messiah's forerunner. No man could have done it better than John the Baptist. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, if you are willing to accept it, 
John himself is Elijah who was to come. Notice these words. If you accept it, right? If you are willing to accept it, meaning John is the forerunner of Christ, which means accepting Christ. If you accept that, then he is the Elijah who was to come. But since they rejected Christ, Elijah must come again. Maybe the real Elijah, personally. Or somebody in the spirit of Elijah. So outwardly, John's ministry was amazing. I mean, John was so famous, he shows up in secular history outside of the Bible. I mean, John was very well known. It's impossible to exaggerate how important he was in his time. How popular he was. Spiritual force. In fact, you know, the angel prophesied about John to his father, Zacharias. An angel appeared to him. Remember that? Luke chapter 1, verse 15 said, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. That's what Elijah's supposed to do. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He really was Elijah. If Israel accepted Christ, he was going to be that person. And that's a direct quote from Malachi. So the angel is saying, Malachi's prophecy is being fulfilled in your generation. And your son is going to be that Elijah in the spirit and power of Elijah. And John would have been it had they responded. But only a few responded, right? I think at the end, you probably could have counted Jesus' disciples in the hundreds. I mean, out of millions of people. It it wasn't, he wasn't accepted, he was rejected. And of course, Jesus says, they did to John whatever they wished, right? He was executed. They're gonna do to Jesus whatever they wished. He's gonna be executed. But here's the thing, God is over all of this totally sovereign, guiding history. It's going exactly the way he wants it to go. Every detail of it, every bit of it. That's why the scriptures, though written many hundreds of years apart by many different people, they just are seamless. They they mesh together perfectly on all of these topics like this. All of these prophets and the New Testament writers. So God is shaping history for his own glory, his own glorious purposes. And it will come out just the way he wants it to come out. So one question might be, well, if God will pour out his spirit of grace and supplication on Israel at the end, why didn't he pour out his spirit of grace and supplication on Israel at the time, right? Because he had a different purpose at that time. Israel, he allowed to be what human beings are, rebellious against God, haters of God, turning against God, rejecting God. Even if they're really religious, and very self-righteous, you know, they really believe in their own goodness. But he lets that happen. So Israel, is, Israel wasn't especially sinful. They were typically sinful. What made them especially sinful was that they had so much light and they turned against it. But they weren't worse people. That's exactly what people, that's what, you go out and tell people about Jesus today, that they have the exact same feeling. And only God's grace can change that. And so God just let them be because Christ had to die for sin. All of that had to happen. The church had to happen so the gospel would go to the whole world and God would save people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That had to happen. So he has his own divine purposes. 
is the Israelites weren't made to be that way. They just were that way. That's what human beings are. We're fallen creatures and we're sinful. So he did, he withheld saving mercy to them, but he didn't push them into that. So we see in Israel what men without grace do on their own. That's it. They loved a very popular prophet. They loved John the Baptist. They professed repentance. They went and got baptized by him and then they turned on the Messiah and against his church. So John said what? What did John say about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they were fine with killing him. They persecuted the church after that. And then they rebelled against Rome and their nation was crushed. I mean crushed in A.D. 70. So without God's grace men will not serve the interests of God. They might be religious, but they're not his people. Scattered, scattered they were until very recent times. Very recent times. So God has multiple purposes. Israel's, Israel represents man's utter disdain for the living God, man as an idolater to his core, but also God displaying his incredible saving love in Christ at the same time. While they're killing him, he's dying for the sins of the world. The very act of deicide, the murder of God, in that very act, Christ is saving millions and millions and millions of people. So Christ comes once to reveal the sin of man and to pay the penalty of it, to bring man's salvation. So it's all there. But God made saving promises to rebellious Israel. Even when they were at their worst rebellion in the Old Testament, he made saving promises to them. You can read about him saying, I'm going to destroy you this way, I'm going to destroy you that way, but someday I'm going to just really bless you and raise you up above. They're in the same parts of the Old Testament. He always drops in this, but I will glorify you, I will magnify you, because I've chosen you. But you're so wicked, I'm going to crush you, I'm going to... And he fulfills all those promises he's going to. God is in complete control. And Jesus describes John the Baptist when he says they did to him whatever they wished. And they're going to do the same to him. And he will in that very suffering conquer the power of sin and death. And begin a process of reconciliation that will eventually be brought to Israel and then the entire world. So while they're on the mountain with Jesus up there on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's, it's all glory. But coming down the mountain, the conversation is always, already turning to this fallen and corrupt world that we live in. Anything goes down here, down here in the valley, right? Men twist everything. They break everything good. They pervert every good thing. They smash the divine order. They break commandments with glee and joy and delight in it, but Jesus goes down. He's taking him down, back down to the foot of the mountain. He leads his disciples down to love the world, the world that doesn't begin to understand him, that, that never will understand him apart from his gracious work. And still he comes, he comes. He's reaching out this hand of divine love to people that they can know God through him. He's coming down the mountain, speaking the truth, offering the only solution that God has provided and telling everyone about it. He did that. And we should do that too. In fact, as soon as Jesus got down to the bottom of the mountain, he runs into this completely wild scene, a just disturbing situation which his other disciples have been involved with. And come back in two weeks and we'll tell you all about it.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sovereign will over all things. You are so great. Your wisdom is infinite. You show your holiness and your judgments and you show your love by redeeming wicked, ungodly, sinful people like us. And we're so thankful. Do your will on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Christ's name, amen.